Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Fixin' to Talk Sports. I am your host, Ryan Brown. Today, I am joined on the show by both Jonathan Sullivan and the Mike. Fellas, how are we doing? I'm doing well, well, Ryan. How are you? I am doing swell. Swell. Glad to have you guys both back on the show. It's been, been a little while, and we are needing to talk about our Boston Celtics and the season that was. They recently finished up their series against the Warriors in the NBA Finals, and unfortunately, it did not go as well as we would have hoped. They appeared to just run out of gas. They took a 2-1 series lead had a chance to go up three games to one with game four being at home, but they couldn't get the job done there. And then the wheels just seemingly fell off completely from there on out. Uh, So the Warriors take the championship in six games, winning their fourth title in eight years and leaving our Celtics without banner 18. So with all that being said, Jonathan, let me get you started. What were your first thoughts on just the NBA Finals series for the Celtics against the Warriors? Well, Ryan, uh, it was tough. You know, I had I thought the Celtics were going to win the the series, especially after Game Three. Not really after Game One, because I think you've seen there's this thing um, in the NBA. It's a stat that I saw a little while ago, where like if a road team wins Game One in a series, but then the, the home team wins game two. So then it's like one, one, the team that is the, um, the home team, like for games one and two are like, they win it like 75% of the time. Like you see it a lot in the playoffs. You saw it with, mm. you saw it with the Celtics against the bucks where the bucks won game one. You also saw it with Memphis and um, Minnesota in the first round. And you've seen it before, especially with the Raptors. They used to do it a lot. Um, when they were like higher seeds with like Lowry and stuff, they lost like the magic one year in the first round of the playoffs in game one. I do remember that, but it's like, I don't know what it is about game one, but it's like, it's something that's common and you really like can't read into much about it. Um, so I'm not surprised that that held true in this finals and the Celtics ended up losing, even though they won game one, but especially after game three, like the way they played, it was like, man, I think they might have this. The Warriors just might not have enough firepower. But then I just, the Warriors kind of just flipped like a switch. I mean, I know people are going to talk about game four and like the Celtics were up at the end. But I mean, games two, game four, game two, game five, and game six. I mean, the Warriors blew doors, like really, in in those games. Um, And I just, I really think, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to give the Celtics justice here um, because I think that the Warriors, as much as people like to say the Celtics were like more talented and stuff like that, I don't know. I think the Warriors just might have had more talent. Hmm. Interesting. We'll, we'll talk about that, get more into detail with that in just a second. Mike, give me your, your first takeaways from the NBA Finals and the Celtics' performance. Um. You know, I I thought it was interesting going into it because you you had two completely different teams in terms of experience. The Warriors 
outside of Wiggins and Poole, every key player on that team had really been there before and done that. And no one on the Celtics had. So going in, there is a lopsided experience factor. And Jonathan and I were talking about this. And I think he makes a good point that experience itself is overrated. But I don't think inexperience is necessarily underrated. I do think that plays a factor. And I think it showed for the Celtics in game four. They had a two-point lead with with around three minutes to go in the game. And they completely choked. In game five, they cut it down to one by the end of the third quarter, and they completely disappeared in the fourth. Um, you know, and, and in game six, they just had no answer for the Warriors. And I think their lack of know-how of being there before, having done that, and having the ability to get over that hump and have that extra gear kick in, it showed. The, the Warriors have that, and Celtics just – they just don't right now. Um, as a whole, their playoff run was – was really good and it was nice to see them get to the finals finally but you know once they got there it it, it was a pretty disappointing ending um, considering that they were up 2-1 and definitely had a really good shot to go up 3-1 and put themselves in 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 legitimate position to win the NBA finals yeah I, I I agree with both of you guys take so far I I think it was a combination of I think I don't want to say people slept on the Warriors because I know that there were plenty of people that were picking the Warriors to kind of reestablish themselves and make it back to the finals. Maybe not necessarily win it all, but definitely get back through the Western Conference and back to the finals. Uh, but with the amount of talent that they do have, once they get to that point, it's it's going to be a, a massive challenge to overcome. And we definitely saw that for sure. And then you add to that the fact that the Celtics couldn't even get out of their own way with the amount of turnovers uh, that they just could not stop whatsoever. It, it, it was a recipe for disaster in a sense. So I, I don't know what you guys' thoughts are or what was the, kind of like the chief reason for why the Celtics kind of failed the way they did, especially going up 2-1 in the series. But was it, would you guys say it was the turnovers, the lack of experience, just the inability to get anything going late games on, on the offensive end, just not, not enough key stops late in games. What, what was it that led to the Celtics downfall eventually in this finals? Mike, I'll start with you. Um, it's hard to say this, but the answer is one person and that's Jason Tatum. Uh, he made all NBA first team this year. He's one of, at this point, you could argue one of the five best players in the league for sure. One of the 10 best. He's as good of a two-way wing as there is in the game of basketball. He simply wasn't good enough in the NBA finals. He, he was inefficient with the ball game one. He, they won in spite of him in game one and the rest of the series, they, they lost the four out of those five games. He, he needs to be better than he was. He was sloppy with his turnovers. He wasn't making shots. I know he had the shoulder thing, but there were some times where he was making shots. So I don't know how much of a factor that necessarily was. Um, you, you know, he, his ball handling wasn't always the best of times. His decision-making wasn't the best. His defense was there. That's, that's for sure. But his offensive game just didn't seem to be at the level that it was when they were playing against Brooklyn or Milwaukee or even Miami for most of it, for that matter. He just seemed like he let the moment get to his head and he couldn't get on the level of Stephen Curry. If, if the Celtics were going to win that series, Tatum was going to have to go toe-to-toe, if not outplay Steph Curry. He didn't even come close to doing that. And at the end of the day, 
if your best player cannot match the other team's best player, you're not going to win a series 99 times out of a hundred. Mm-hmm. Jonathan. Um, well, I definitely think Tatum deserves a large portion of the blame, but, uh, Mike covered that. So, and as a stand, stands, stand, stand, I won't do that to him. Um, so I'll take my blame to a different spot and I will blame the bench. Um, really just the three man rotation of Derek white, Peyton Pritchard and little Mike Grant Williams. Um, I thought that they were horrible all series really. I mean, outside of game one, after game one, where they shot the lights out, Derek white in particular, horrible Pritchard. I had said off the record that he was an X factor coming in. Mike can vouch. I said he was an X factor coming into the series because they needed him to match some of the suit, the shooting that the warriors would have with Jordan Poole. He was horrible. I mean, unplayable as we know, because Pritchard is small and he gets abused on the defensive end. If he's not hitting at least like at least 40% of his threes, then he's basically unplayable. Um, so he fell away. Little Mike, sorry, awful. In game six, I believe he was like minus 15 in three minutes or something like that at one point, and then minus 20 in like five. I mean, he was like, oh, I mean, horrible, horrible, horrible. And Derek White, he had came kind of into his own in the Miami series. He was one of their better players, and then especially that first series against um, the first game against Golden State, I was calling him Derek Curry and stuff like that, the way he was shooting <laughs> the ball. But, man, he he turned into the Derek White that, like, you saw against, like, Brooklyn, just, like, basically unplayable as well. I mean, and the Warriors bench isn't, like, all that, but, like, still, I mean, Gary Payton was excellent in this series, I thought. Uh, Jordan Poole had some really bad games, but he also had some really good games. Um, and the Celtics bench just didn't get anything. Like I really outside of game one, I thought that they were horrific. They gave they gave them absolutely nothing. And it was it was um really came to head in game six, where I, I believe the the bench in the first quarter in the first half was like minus twenty or something like that. I mean, the Golden State went on that twenty one to O run and it was basically all against the bench and then like Tatum or, or someone else that was out there at the same time. But it was like really just the bench and, you know, you need some, some role players to step up. You saw that against, you know, Milwaukee where little Mike was hitting all those threes in game seven or, you know, against Miami, like Derek white was pretty good. Um, and when those guys fall, when, you know, Tatum isn't playing as well, I mean, you're just, you're, you're toast. Yeah. I, I agree with everything you guys have said in terms of what, what went wrong. Tatum obviously did not have an effective final series shooting 37% from the field in a lowly 32% from inside the three point arc. Like he was, he was okay. Like, okay. is probably not the, the right word. He shot 45% from three. That, he was sniping. That. He, he, he was, he was doing plenty fine from three but he could not get anything going inside the paint or inside the three-point arc. And it seemed like every time he tried to force the issue and and it just resulted in him turning the ball over or a kind of a a mishandled possession. And the offense just seemed all jumbled up because of it. And you look at the bench, I 100% agree. I mean, 
you said Peyton Pritchard needs to shoot 40% from three to be usable. Well, he shot a nice, cool 21% from three in the finals. Uh, that That's just not going to do it. And it, it, I mean, with Derek White shooting 33% from the field it, it, and him getting the majority of the bench minutes, that's not going to cut it either. So they really just didn't have any sort of response if the starters didn't have it. And when you have to run guys like Smart and Robert Williams, who are, we know they are banged up and not at 100% at this point in the season, that that puts an additional toll on them to try and do more than you would like them to have to do from an offensive standpoint. Um, so it kind of just all added up to uh, it, it, it just the Celtics running out of steam and not having any answers. And part of the reason why I think they didn't have any answers is because I don't think they really made enough adjustments on the offense and to where, to how the Warriors were kind of scheming them up defensively. I, I noticed a lot of just kind of every here and there, the Warriors would decide to double team Tatum and there would be stretches where he wouldn't, get rid of the ball quick enough would pick up his dribble and turn the ball over. And I know that he's first NBA, all NBA first team. I know that Tatum, our King set all sorts of records in this playoffs. He became the first ever Eastern conference finals, MVP, the youngest player ever to record 600 points, hundred rebounds, hundred assists in a single postseason. But he also had a hundred turnovers in this postseason which is by far the most all time. So while there were certainly a lot of pluses to take away, especially for Tatum, there were certainly negatives. And hopefully they become learning points and and stuff that you can build off of for the future and not stuff that's going to inhibit growth going forward. Um, But speaking of Tatum, I want to – I know – me and Jonathan aren't going to really critique him too, too hard being the stands that we are. He's our king. So Lil Mike, let me ask you this. How would you view and assess Tatum's play in the entire playoffs? Take, take the finals and the entire postseason run where they won multiple game sevens and they really didn't lose an elimination game until the Warriors backed them up against the, the door. Well, as a whole, I would probably go with, if I had to give it a letter grade, I'd give it a B minus. Um, you know, if you take it round by round against the Nets, he gets an A plus. He, he dominated Kevin Durant. He was the best player on the floor by a mile. Um, and, and he's the reason that even though every game was close, they swept because of him. Against the Bucks and the Heat, it's probably closer to an A minus because he wasn't necessarily the best player on the floor in every game. He had some moments where he disappeared, but he was really good for the vast majority of those series. He went toe-to-toe with Giannis and Jimmy Butler, which is not easy to do. And he showed what his true colors can be if he gets in rhythm and if he's allowed to be the focal point of the offense. Against the Warriors, he gets a D minus. Uh, he was he just what he wasn't good enough, plain and simple. I mean, I, I think he is the best athlete in Boston right now. I think he has what it takes to be a championship one. That's pretty clear. And I think he could, he could get an MVP one day, but against the golden state warriors, he simply wasn't good enough there. The only reason he doesn't get an F is because in game five, he was the only reason that game was even close. And they even had a chance to get back up three, two. 
He, he carried them throughout the third quarter. He was shooting well all game. Brown and the entire rest of the team disappeared, and and he kept them in that. But other than that, Jalen Brown outplayed him this series. He was shooting better. He he wasn't turning the ball over as much, given he wasn't allowed to dribble as much as he was against Miami, where he was turning it over like seven times a game. But still, he Brown outplayed him, and you know Tatum had to get carried to a win. That shouldn't happen with your star player. The exception being obviously Curry with the Warriors when they had Durant, but that's beside the point. The point is. Your number one option should not have to get carried to a win in the NBA Finals, and he did. Um, on the whole, I, like I said, I do think he can be a championship one. I think he's shown that, but he wasn't good enough in the NBA Finals. Um, I, I hope that he can get out of his own head because I think it's just mental. I don't think it's anything physical. I think he's good enough you know, to do it skill-wise. I, I just think there's some hurdle inside of, inside of his brain that he needs to get over. And something that he needs to to clarify to figure it out and and be that going forward. Jonathan, what kind of positives can Tatum and the rest of the team take from this playoff run? They finally, ha- having made the Eastern Conference Finals four of the past six years, they finally broke through and made it to, back to the NBA Finals for the first time in twelve years. Uh, what what positives can Tatum and the Celtics take from this playoff run? Well, I think some of the positives they can take is that finally, I think you have your, your answer for Tatum and Brown in particular of whether or not they need to be broken up or they can't play together. I think that question has been answered and it's a resounding that they, yes, they can play together. Um, so you can finally have your first like real off season really in like a little while where it's like, all right, we know like what our main plan is for next season. We're going to, basically probably like run it back with like our core group of guys. There may be some slight tweaks and changes in there possibly, but you know, there's finally a contingency um, with the Celtics this off season. And so everyone kind of coming into next year is going to know their roles and know that the team was, you know, two games away from winning a championship. And that hopefully that's the motivation that they need to train extra hard this off season and come out firing from the, uh, from the get-go next year and then be the best, you know, regular season te- uh, team of the league. Mm. I definitely want to put a bookmark in the, the sort of off season note that you brought up there. Uh, I think that's definitely something we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Uh, but I do want to kind of wrap up the season that was 2021, 2022 by kind of posing this question for the Celtics in that we talk, we've talked about this postseason run, but we'd be remiss if we didn't kind of now bring it full circle and talk about the season as a whole. This team in January was below 500. They couldn't win more than two games. They couldn't lose more than two games. They, they really just had no sense of consistency or rhythm whatsoever. Other than that, they just looked mediocre. And it looked like it was going to be another kind of brutal season. And then... Somehow the flip switched. Everyone bought into Udo, to Ime's kind of philosophy and his schemes and his and his thought process, and they became not only the number one rated offense in the league, but the number one rated defense in the league from that point on for the rest of the season and into the playoffs. And for them to not only turn their season around completely, do a complete one eighty, get into the playoffs 
get the two seed when they were basically treading water and looking like a potential play in tournament team being in that seven to 10 seed range. And then finally, not only get back to the conference finals, but win that series breakthrough, get to the finals and come within two wins of a championship. I mean, I think we have to view this as a successful season. It just, it just stings that it finished the way it did without a championship uh, at the end. So I, I would say that this was a successful season in terms of they figured, finally figured things out. They started to make some moves instead of stalking draft picks. Brad Stevens actually gave up one in order to go get Derek white and that paid dividends at in parts of the season, especially during parts of the playoff run. And I, I would view the entirety of the season as a success and not sort of a failure or a dis- or even disappointment. I think it had a disappointing end, obviously, but I think there's a lot of success, a lot of stuff that you can really truly build on and, and, that, and hope that this isn't going to be a one-and-done appearance in the finals for the Celtics for years to come. But let me, let me ask you guys how you feel about the season as a whole. Uh, Jonathan, you can go first. Well, if I was going to give it a letter grade based on where they were, like you said, in January or December, I mean, it would have to be an A. But if you were to give like a letter grade after where they were after game three, the finals, it'd be like a C. But overall, it you have to say it was a positive. I mean, you finally saw that the Celtics can play together with the roster they have. And they finally, you know, showed up game in and game out. It was funny, you know, because you mentioned that they couldn't win two games or or lose more than two games and you know you saw it at the beginning of the year where like they would play like good teams and they would like show up and like win or something like that and then they'd play like the pistons or um the pacers and they would like struggle or lose i mean the 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 pistons governed them for some reason even when they were good when they started getting good the pistons governed (laughs) them but it was like they couldn't get up for every game. And that's almost like what happened to what people were saying was happening to them in the playoffs too, is they kind of reverted back to that where there was like when their backs against the wall, they showed up and won. But then like when they had a chance to put their foot on the throat of, you know, Milwaukee um, in game five or Miami in game four or game three and then game six, it was like it was the same thing that you kind of saw at the beginning of the year where it's like these are like every game matters, but the Celtics can't get up unless like it's a big game or like their back is against the wall kind of. Um, and so they kind of regress back to that. But overall, I mean, how can you not come out of this se- season with like a positive outlook? Um, you'd have to be crazy, in my opinion. I mean, they were they were under 500 basically in the middle of January and they made it to the NBA finals. And I think you know, the project trajectory should still be up. I agree. Mike. Yeah. I, I mean, grand scheme of things, it's a success. The end results, just a failure, just because anytime you get up to one of the finals and blow it, it has to be considered a failure, but you know, overall it, you guys have kind of hit the nail on the head. Tatum and Brown can play together. They seem to have a sense of urgency towards the end of the season. They show that they can get over the hump. They have a young star core to build around. They're in really good shape for the next, you know, four to five years. 
And the front office has shown a willingness to go out and do what it takes to build a winning team around Tatum and Brown. It's grand scheme of things. It's, it's looking really good and getting that first finals experience can only help them going forward. Um, but like you said, Ryan, it, it just things right now, just knowing where they were. Mm-hmm. Now to put a bow on this season, I, I think we just have to wrap up and talk about where this leaves Steph Curry in the grand scheme of things. He get like I said, the, him and the Warriors get their fourth title in eight years. It might be the most surprising one of the four. Obviously, they won two with Durant in tow. The 2015 one was the one that really put them on the map. And now they're back with basically a similar kind of talent group as 2015, except uh, they do have some, some younger pieces that could grow into roles. I mean, James Wiseman was out all season. That's a former number one overall pick. Jonathan Kamunga basically got no playing time for them in, in the playoffs this year. He's a lottery pick from last year. Like they have some guys that if they, not only if they bring most of the fold back from this championship, uh, they, they have some younger guys that could grow into, into role players. So in the, in the near future. So the outlook for, for golden state looks good, but specifically I want to ask you guys about Steph Curry's Steph Curry from a legacy point. Where does this put Curry among the NBA's all-time greats? I know every that's kind of been a kind of hot topic of discussion amongst plenty of people on social media, media members alike. But I want to get your thoughts, your guys' thoughts on that. Where do you guys, Steph Curry, where does he sit now on the throne of NBA all-time greats? Mike, I'll start with you. You know, the series completely changed the way I viewed him. For a long time, I viewed him as... He poached off Durant. He didn't win the finals MVP against the Cavs. He, you know, he he shies away from the big moment. He's kind of just a, a beta player. And that's not at all how I look at him now. He is and has been for a long time one of the great players this league has ever seen. I mean, the guy just, he was guarded by the defensive player of the year. And you would have thought he was being guarded by Peyton Pritchard the whole series, the way he played, because he just he dominated Marcus Smart for for six games, really five because he he couldn't really shoot the ball well in one of those games. But he was still getting you know his shots off inside the arc. He still cleared I think twenty points the game where he didn't make a three. So you know all time, I think he's on the Mount Rushmore with Jordan, LeBron, and Kareem. No player has ever changed the game the way Steph Curry's changed the game in terms of shooting the basketball. No player has ever caused a team to game plan where you have to start guarding a guy the second he crosses half court, the way Steph Curry does. No player has changed, you know, the entire focal point of a series the way he has outside of those three other names that I've mentioned. You know, you look at the great players of this game, like Magic Johnson, great passer, great defensive player, but did he really change entire defensive game plans? No. Larry Bird, no. Even Durant, like, you just kind of threw your best defender at him, but – you didn't have to completely change the focal point of how you you did things on the defensive side of the ball. Steph Curry does that. He, he shows up night in and night out, works his ass off. He's the best player on the floor nine times out of ten. The only real times he isn't are when he's playing against a guy like Durant or LeBron or now Giannis sometimes. But 
I mean, he's 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 been the figurehead of a dynasty that's won four titles in eight years. They went through two rough years of not being all that good, and then they come back and win against the best defensive team in the league. And he makes him look like chopped liver, for lack of a better word. I, I think he's top five for sure at this point. I I don't see how he couldn't be. I definitely think you can make a case for top five. I'm not 100% sure he's there yet, but I definitely think it's a very viable case and I can't really disagree with it. Jonathan, where do you, where do you stand on, on this one? Um, that's, that's a bold take for a little Mike to have him in top five all time. I don't hate it, but, uh, I, I agree with what he said about how he changed the game. I mean, no one has really changed the game like Steph Curry has. I really think in like history, like even, even Jordan, like the way he played didn't like, didn't alter the game. Like the way Curry has completely transformed how teams play. I mean, it's all drive and kick now, drive and kick, drive and kick. The three is King. Um, and that's what the Warriors and Curry started. Um, but I, I'd probably have him in like, he's bordering like on the top 10 now, but um, I think for sure over like the last 15 years, when you say like, who was the best player, over the last 15 years, that's LaMickey. But the second best player, I think people are going to say like Durant, like, oh, Durant, Durant, Durant. No, no, no. I think it's Curry now just because what Durant did, maybe Durant has like, you know, more physical skill. But like what Mike said about Curry um, changing the game and stuff like that. And just what Durant did going to Golden State like that, like pure skill wise, it doesn't like diminish him. But just like legacy wise, like it just has to like it, it has to knock him down like pegs. So for that reason, I'm going to say over the last 15 years, like the top players are Lamicky one. And then I it, it's Curry. Curry is second um, in that sense. And then all time, I guess, like top 10. But that's like more debatable. I, I really don't think it's any debate now um, over the last 15 years. Lamicky one, Curry two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think Steph is top 10. I, I think you can start definitely start to make the case for top five. He's somewhere in that five to 10 or six to 10 range. I think for sure um, you could, I mean, you can always make a case that he's just outside the top 10. Th- those things are always up for debate, but uh, I, I think he's, he's slowly but surely kind of getting to the point where there is no debate, like no debate that he's one of the all time great players and definitely has changed the game more so than any other player in league history has, but let's, let's circle back to Celtics. Now let's start talking about the off season, what the team's priorities should be. There's going to be some interesting decisions, but there aren't honestly really aren't that many decisions to be made here because with price, basically your entire rotation being fully guaranteed for next year outside of Al Horford. There's not a whole lot that the Celtics can do in terms of major changes. So they're going to have to really make find those kind of those like key pieces to kind of beef up the bench and take advantage of uh, where they got the tax player the the mid-level exception the the taxpayer exception there's like a bunch of different like mid-level like exceptions and and they they also have some trade exceptions to work with as well 
but they don't have their first round pick this year. That was obviously traded to San Antonio to get Derek white into town. But I think they obviously are going to have to kind of rebuild or try and retool the bench as best as they can. The, the question is, how do you do that? And who do you target to do that? Because you look at the team and I think it's, it's apparent you need, you need another point guard. Marcus Smart definitely made some strides as a point guard. And I, I liked what I saw from him at, in, in his transition to becoming a, a more kind of traditional point guard. But they, there's still some, some passes, some decision-making that, that, that kind of just scratches the head in terms of why would you do that? So I think they're, they are still missing like a true playmaking point guard. And obviously they need more firepower off the bench. They need a little bit more shooting, a little bit more scoring. And uh, they're going to have to do that. Not really, not really through the the draft. They're going to have to do that through free agency using tax and mid-level exceptions as well as trade exceptions. So that all being said, the general question is what are the Celtics offseason priorities in your guys' opinion. Jonathan, I'll start with you. Okay, Ryan, I'm going to give you two names that I would like to see the Celtics sign. I think they kind of fit what you were saying, the first being like the ball handler. Um, I don't know what this guy's relationship with Brad Stevens is, but it's time to bring back Rajon Rondo. See if he's still got (sighs) something in the tank. He's a pure point guard, as we know, a pure passer. Yes. And... Playoff Rondo. Don't sleep on playoff Rondo as well, okay? This guy gets hot. He, he shows up for the big games. Um, that's my first because I think you can get him on the cheap for a one year. The second is I've always told Mike that I want them to sign Carmelo to come off the bench for instant offense, but I'm not going to go there this time. I think it's a guy that you just played, you could see, and that's Otto Porter Jr. I, I think he would be a perfect fit off the Celtics bench. He shot the ball pretty well. Um, at the beginning of this series, he cooled down a little bit, but he's a, he's a willing defender. He knows his role, obviously now that he just played, you know, off the bench for golden State, although he did start towards the end of the series, but I think he could also slide in, you know, on a cheap deal. And, um, those two, I think would, would bolster that second unit. Um, because basically you need, a guy coming off the bench at like the three position, you basically need what Aaron Neesmith was supposed to be, but what we know he will never be um, because he doesn't belong in the league. Um, So those are two names that stick out to me as like getting your backup, like ball dominant pass first guard, and then your three and D um, willing to know his role uh, wing defender. Okay. Mike, what what are your what would your offseason priorities be f- for the Boston Celtics? Okay, well, um first off, I know, I know Jonathan didn't go there, but fuck Carmelo. We're just going to start with that. Uh do not want him at all. Don't touch him with a 10-foot pole. Um I don't, I don't hate those suggestions. I'll give you a name that if they're going to use the mid-level on anybody because it's really the only thing they can do. 
They need a ball handler and they need a wing. What if you try to get two of those in one while at the same time making it someone who's affordable? My answer is Joe Ingles. He's, you know, a six foot seven forward. He is used to coming off the bench in Utah. He, he did some, some ball handling when Mike Conley went to the bench. He can shoot the ball well. He can kind of serve as an off-ball guy. He knows how to catch and shoot. He kind of fits everything that the Celtics need. Um, I'm not sure. I think he's a free agent. I'm not 100% sure, but I think he's the perfect fit for this team. He, he kind of fills every role well. The only thing he doesn't do is play defense, but they have so many guys who do play defense that they can survive him uh, being a liability out there with the offense that he would provide on a one-year mid-level exception style deal. I think he's the perfect fit for this team. I think he fits the seventh man role well, and I think he's a guy they should target. Other than that, if they don't use the mid-level on him, find someone who is a good fit for the team and make sure everybody stays healthy. Um, I think they've already announced they're going to guarantee out his contract, so it's going to be a quiet offseason. This team just made the final, so I don't expect them to do much tinkering, maybe just finding one or two pieces that could help get them over the hump. But, yeah, I mean – Keep everyone healthy, find a good fit, and run it back and just get over the hump this time. That's that's pretty much the end goal. Can I just say it it is and and just because this guy, you know he grinds my gears, so I, I can't stop talking about him. But it actually is hilarious how perfect if Aaron Neesmith was what the, he was projected to be, how perfect he would fit into like the Celtics off the bench, like the perfect three and D guy, pretty athletic, you know, can, can switch off the ball um, and then knock down the open shot. The problem is, is that he uh, can't do that he, last part. He can't, well, he can't, he also is an overrated defender because he has freak athleticism, but he can't defend without fouling and people just see the blocks and they're like, Oh my God, this guy's got like this raw build. The problem is, is that he's so raw. And then he's going into year three and he still hasn't harnessed it because he never will, because he mentally can't play in the NBA. Yeah. And he can't shoot. Yeah. 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 If, if Aaron Neesmith ever put it all together, man, that, that would be the day. And I, I would be jumping for joy. Uh, but Assuming that he's not going to put it all together and not have a breakout season off the bench for the Celtics next year, I think you do have to kind of decide what, how you want to address the bench because I, I, your starting rotation is not going to change unless of injury. So I think you're looking at do you want to add another ball handler to kind of supplement Marcus Smart? and take and kind of have to take the less kind of playmaking responsibilities uh, out of the hands of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, of which they did make strides and grow in that department this year. So that would, I'm not saying that they need to have the ball taken out of their hands, but they are more dribble drive guys who need the ball in their hands to do the majority of their offensive workload. So you, you definitely want to have that kind of, pass first guy to kind of help set them up. Uh, if, if you want to go that route, maybe you, you use one of those big trade exceptions you've used or you have on, on tap. And maybe you, you talk to Utah and you say, Hey, what about Mike Conley? You, you, you going to keep him around or is he available? 
And if he's available, that could be a guy that a has some playoff experience and B is a proven playmaker on the court. I don't know if he necessarily fits the the scheme of the Boston Celtics, but that is certainly a guy that could fit that sort of need and, and could, could certainly be huge if you're looking for that. Now, obviously that, that would be a little bit more pricey. That would obviously put the team well over the, the tax, uh, the hard cap and ownership would have to sign off on going over that. But if you want to just use the, uh, one of the mid-level exceptions, maybe it's a, it's a guy like, uh, I don't know. I, this name always gets thrown up and I'm going to bring it up again. Cause he's a Duke boy, but Luke Kennard, I, I mean, I know he's more so a, a two or a three. He's not really a wing per se, but um, I mean, that is, three-point shooting off the bench that could have been used big time and could fill the role that, I don't know, an Aaron Neesmith is supposed to be filling. So if if that were an option, I, I mean, I'd still look into that. So I, I think you kind of have to – I don't think you're going to be able to address both in one, like you said, Mike, but if you, you could, a guy like Joe Ingles would be – would be huge. Uh, he's he is coming off of, I believe, a torn ACL, if I'm not mistaken. So you'd have to kind of see where he is along in his recovery process. But uh, assuming that he bounces back and he's the kind of guy that he was for the majority of his career in Utah, especially of late, that that would be a, a big time addition. And uh, I mean, I I also like yours, Jonathan, as well. I think. Rondo would be the ideal fit. He's he knows how to play in Boston. I know it's not the same kind of group that he once knew, but he would fit in seamlessly, I think, in the role that he would be expected to fill. So I, I like kind of the options you guys have thrown out there. I, I hope they're reasonable and feasible, but we're not who knows what the Celtics are going to do. It's all in all likelihood, they'll just end up, like Mike said, kind of staying quiet, maybe just up, uh, exercise an option here or send, send a guy or, to the G league and this and that and nothing sign a guy for the bench minimum, nothing crazy. So it, it's not, it's probably going to be uh, a non tumultuous off season for the Boston Celtics. And you just hope that with another year of big time playoff experience under their belt, that they can, run it back and and kind of get over that one final hump to the mountaintop. So that being said, let's uh kind of wind things down here. And I want to get your guys' early predictions for next season. Uh, obviously, the Warriors are the betting favorites to, to run it back and repeat as defending champions. The Celtics are up there, depending on what site you use, what sports book you're looking at Celtics are either second or third to, uh, in terms of winning the championship next year. So they're going to have lofty expectations because they're one of the teams, few teams that's going to be bringing back the majority, if not the entire core of this, of this team that just went to game six of the NBA finals. So Mike, I'll start with you. What, what are, what are your early thoughts on and predictions for next season? So from a Celtics perspective, 
I think that they'll be a top three team in the East again. I think Milwaukee's obviously going to be a team that's tough to contend with, but they already showed they can go toe-to-toe with them. Miami's always a good regular season team. Um, I, I think that's your clear-cut top three. I don't know if Boston's one, two, or three, but they'll be up there. I think Tatum's looking at another all-NBA first-team finish. I think, you know, he, he tends to start slow and then pick it up. I think he might start a little bit quicker next year, given how the finals went, and I think that's really going to play up for him. I think my bolder Celtics pick, I think Jalen Brown's going to be all-NBA second team. I think he's tired of Tatum getting all the attention, consistently getting snubbed for the all-star team. I I think he's going to put in a lot of work this offseason on his ball handling, on his overall decision-making, on his playmaking, and he's going to take his game to another level. Um, and that will certainly play up. As for who's going to be the best team, it's going to be the Warriors. I mean, they've got all the momentum. They're going to bring a lot of that team back. They're probably going to run most of the same core back. I think they'll lose, you know, I think Looney's gone and I think Peyton's gone. But other than that, they'll bring most of that core back. Um, I think Curry's going to win MVP next year at 35 years old, which is outrageous to say that about someone not named LeBron. But I think he's going to try to give it one last push to, you know, show that he still has it at, at such an old age for a basketball player. And I think that come finals time, I think we're going to be looking at Warriors versus Bucks, the last two champions to, to win it. I think the Celtics will come close, but we didn't see the Celtics versus a healthy Bucks team. I don't think we'll get that lucky again. And I think that, you know, we could see a sort of passing of the torch from the Warriors dynasty to the Bucks dynasty starting next year. If Milwaukee can get back on the mountaintop and, if there's a team that, you know, can, can take that away uh, from the Warriors, it is the – that's not the Celtics, it's the Bucks. So, I, I guess that's – those are some loose predictions for you. I love to hear those. Jonathan, you got any? All right. Uh, well, my prediction of Jalen Brown, all-NBA second team, that is pretty bold. Pretty, pretty bold. I think he'll be an all-star next year for sure. Him and Tatum, just because I think, um, as Mike said, I do think the team's going to come out of the gate strong. I think they're going to kind of pick up where they did in the second half of the regular season. And I think they'll be the one seed quite, quite frankly, in the East next year. I think Miami is due to regress um, a little bit. Butler is up there in age. Lowry, I think is cooked. He's, he's used goods. Um, and I just think they're they're you know they're a good regular season team. Obviously, Spolster always gets them to play hard, which gets you some wins in the regular season in the NBA. But I just think the Celtics, regular season wise, with that roster still young, um, I see no reason why they shouldn't be the one seed in the East. Um, and because of that, I think that that means that they'll have they would obviously have home court throughout the playoffs, which obviously didn't mean anything to them this year because they literally played better on the road than they did at home. But it did matter, I think, in Game 7 against Milwaukee that they had home court. Um, and I think that would matter again against Milwaukee in a Game 7 next year, probably in the Eastern Conference Finals, because Milwaukee and the Celtics, I think, will be 1-2 in the East. I think those two are really the only two teams that you can make, like, unless something goes drastically wrong or, like, Joel Embiid becomes Shaq, um, that the Sixers could make it out of the East. And I really don't... I think Brooklyn is going to implode. I think Irving might be gone. Uh, more reports came out about that today, which is great news for the Celtics. Um, so I really think it's the Bucks or Celtics coming out of the East. Mike has the Bucks. I'll take the Celtics again. Um, and then I really think it's out of the West. I think it's either 
Dallas or Golden State. Um, Steph Curry is going to be 35. He had bad ankles when he was younger. What's who says that the ankles don't finally catch up to him again? You know, at 35, he had some he had some foot problems this year. You know, he missed time down the stretch. Um, Luca, I think, is going to be even better. He probably he would probably be my pick to win MVP next year, especially if Dallas is like a one or two seed in the West. They just added Christian Wood, who can't play a lick on defense, but is really good on offense, and they they missed that. Um, you know, in the playoffs, they got to the they get to the conference finals without Tim Hardaway Jr., who's one of their better secondary pieces. Um, they have a big free agent in Jalen Brunson. It'll be interesting to see if they can re-sign him because he's going to get some serious money on the open market after what he did during down the stretch. But um, I'll, I will go Golden State Celtics in the rematch, um, except next year the Celtics come on top uh, because they'll have home court. They'll have the best record in the regular season in the entire league. That's my bold Hot take Celtics number one record in the league next year for the regular season. Love that. I, I do think Dallas after the postseason run that they've had, I think they are here to stay. I, I do like the Christian Wood move for them. I think that gives them another solid offensive big to run in tandem uh, in the pick and roll game with Luca. And if they can bring back Brunson, who I love, I the, he's what six two, like if that, and he's just able to just carve up people in the paint on the dribble drive. It, he's he's I, I think he's a he's a blossoming NBA player, and he will be a great great player for them for years to come if they're able to to keep him around, and that that should be their utmost priority. If they do, I, I like Dallas to be a, a definitely a Western conference contender next year. I don't know about finals contender, but they'll definitely be in the conversation for fighting for the conference championship. Uh, I, I would, uh, Ryan, can I, can I add one thing about Dallas? Yes. Um, I heard today a little NBA like rumors. I don't really know how this, how exactly they would make the money match or what would have to give, be given up. But it was if, if Brooklyn loses Kyrie and they decide to completely strip it down, and that would mean they would also move Durant, that Dallas would be the prime destination to go all in to trade for Kevin Durant to pair with Luka Doncic. Oh, my God. That's absolutely mortifying. That's, that's miserable. That... that- that might be worse than Curry and Durant, if I'm being no. like, I'm, I'm just saying, like, here's the, the thing is, you have to take the Warriors with a grain of salt because you also had Thompson on that team. Like, Dallas doesn't have a pure number three on the level of Clay Thompson. And I know I just said Curry is an all-time great shooter, but the Warriors just ran around, and when they weren't running around, it didn't work. They went to Durant to bail them out with those jump shots. In Dallas, Durant's going to get a lot more on-ball looks than he would. And it would take a lot of the pressure off of Luca. And I mean, it wouldn't, they wouldn't be better than the Warriors. But what I'm saying is, is Durant would have a lot more on ball responsibility and, you know, allowance in Dallas more so than he had in Golden State. And I think the idea of having him and Luca for one or two years doing that is, I, I shouldn't have said more terrifying because you're right, but it's probably just as bad as him and Curry if it were just the two of them. 
Yeah, I mean, if the, if the if Dallas was going to make that hypothetical trade, I mean, they'd have to go all in. They'd have to give up like, you know, you're talking three, four first round picks, um, you know, unprotected, all that stuff like that. Probably like years down the line, you know, kind of a la Celtics Nets trade with those picks, you know, way down there. Um, I think it, it would be massive. I I don't think it's going to happen. I think Durant's probably is likely back in Brooklyn next year. Um, but it's just something I, I had read today. I mean, I don't know. Like you said, I'm not sure how the, the money would match up, who would, who would stay, who would go from Dallas. Maybe if they're unable to bring back Brunson, they make that part of it and they do like a sign and trade somehow to make that work. Uh, Brunson gets his money in Brooklyn. Durant gets to to swing on over and just casually pair up with Luca, and then then holy holy crap, that's that it that would be something. Be good news for the Celtics though, at least in the regular season. Yes, yes, it would. Um, and and maybe that that would be good because then the Warriors would actually have a series that they would actually have to try for in the Western Conference because if you look at the Warriors playoff run. I mean, they kind of were on cruise control all the way up until the Celtics kind of put them up against it early on in the series. And when the Warriors hit that next level gear and the Celtics just didn't have, they ran away with it. So, I mean, uh, there needs to be somebody to challenge the Warriors. I thought that would be the Suns, but now I'm not so sure after their epic collapse against Dallas in the second round. In, in that game seven, that, that is just concerning to say the least. I know a good chunk of that Phoenix core is very young and they do, they do at the end of the day, still have a finals trip under their belt, but you're only going to have Chris Paul playing at the level that he played at this year f- for so much longer. You don't know how many more years he can keep up his level of play. And if Devin Booker and DeAndre Aiden aren't ready to take the keys to the car and kind of start to rule the roost of the West, they, they might end up being the, the Atlanta Hawks of what, 10, 10, five, 10 years ago, where they were just regular season heroes. They could, they could end up being the current Utah jazz regular season heroes can't do Jack in the playoffs. And that, that would be a shame. That's another, another team to watch this off season is the jazz because the rumors are that with Quinn Snyder out, they're ready to blow it up. And with Gobert and Mitchell, they have two serious game-changing assets um, that th- that could move the needle for a lot of teams. And I think that, you know, there are going to be teams ready to pounce on their roster, um, you, you know, if, if they do decide to go that way. And we know Danny Ainge isn't afraid to trade stars for draft picks. That's, I think that's why they brought him in last offseason. They kind of knew this was on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Milwaukee's gonna go on for Gobert. Oh, so? that would that would be yeah. oh that would be a stone cold. Oh my god! Can yeah, you just yeah. imagine Giannis and Gobert just chilling in the paint? What what the hell do you do? You have to shoot over everything. You have little Mike shoot eighteen threes and hope for <laughs> you can, you have to hope for game seven, little Mike against the Bucks. That is what you hope. <laughs> I what I will say though is. The downside to that is Giannis only scores in the paint and Gobert cannot outscore outside of the paint. So yeah. while the defense would be a would be a massive upgrade for them, you just go under on every screen that Gobert sets for Giannis and just crowd the heck out of the paint. 
and play like a boxing one on like Chris Middleton. And, you know, yeah. you just close it. Holiday's a good shooter, but he's not a great shooter. You can close out on him. If he's hitting him, you tip your cap. If he's not, you're probably winning the game. And you just guard Middleton or Connaughton. And that's why Brooke Lopez works, works so well for them is because he's a center, seven-footer, but he can shoot. So he can sit in the corner. He can sit out on the perimeter and space the, help space the floor for Giannis. Whereas Gobert, I mean, he, he'd be a fish out of water anywhere outside of 10, 15 feet of the basket. So that, that would be an interesting one to draw up. Yeah, and Connaughton is a free agent this year. So hopefully he's, he uh, cashes in somewhere. I don't know if Milwaukee will have the money to re-sign him. Um, yeah. Cause I think after this playoff, he's, he's due, he's going to get like, I don't know, four for 48 or four for 52, the way money's thrown around these days mm-hmm. would be my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw PJ Tucker is declining his player option with the heat. So there was like a bunch of people like in the comments on like Shams's tweet. And it was like, he wants to go home to Milwaukee. He wants to go back to Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Milwaukee. So mm-hmm. they might just swap those two out, um, which I think would be a downgrade for them to be honest with you. I mean, Tucker's obviously a better defender, but, Connaughton was pretty good against the Celtics in the playoffs. Yeah, he was. And I'll give you a, a different landing spot for Gobert. Phoenix, because they want to get rid of Aiton. They they don't want Aiton there anymore. And I'm convinced, or maybe, I don't think they want to pay Aiton what Aiton feels he's worth. And Aiton wants to get paid max money. And I think with the Suns kind of being in win now mode, and they kind of need a defensive anchor on the inside who isn't going to get bullied again if they run into Giannis in the finals, and Gobert is that. So, If, if the Celtics were to make a shocking trade this offseason, they would be for DeAndre Ayton, and they would package Rob Williams, Marcus Smart, yep. and the pick. I was actually thinking of that earlier. I, I not even And then that's your big three of Brown, Tatum, and Ayton. For I don't years. know that – I don't think Smart would go, though. No? I, I think it would just be – I think it would be Williams and maybe May – a.k.a. Grant Williams, for those who are unfamiliar with the name. Um, that would probably be more likely what would, would end up happening because I think Boston would would want to keep Smart as a point guard, and he doesn't really fit what Phoenix needs. Um, you could unironically see Neesmith get thrown in there as a flyer, which would be hilarious. But um, it would it, it would be – if Boston's going to make a shocking trade, it's going to be Williams because Brad might look at it and say, all right, this guy can't stay healthy. We need to get a center who can. And Aiton for Williams would probably be the move. Hmm. all right well i think we've come to the end of this episode you guys have any final thoughts before we sign off here jonathan nah no go tatum hopefully he's uh all nba first team again next year mvp dark horse Mm -hmm. i would i would have to agree with that um go tatum go celtics and uh and that's going to do it for this edition of and, uh, Fix and oh, Talk wait, wait, Sports. Wait, 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 fuck Duke. For fuck Duke. Jonathan yeah, that's Tull- right. Fuck Duke. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. <laughs> I hate it here. Night, Ryan. For Jonathan, Lil Mike, I'm Ryan. We'll see you next time.